Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us, then, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us, The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. One aspect of Jesus' life which causes men and women to hold him in such high regard even today, is his teaching. It happened then, and it happens today. And so you can see just up the page in our reading, when they heard it, they marveled. And then in verse 33, when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Now, we read that all the time in the Gospels at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. They were astonished at his teaching. He was teaching them as one who had authority. And then at the end of his string of famous parables in chapter 13, coming to his hometown, Jesus taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And we read it here. And I've referenced on a number of occasions Tony Jordan. He was commissioned to produce a birth narrative TV documentary by the BBC. And he wrote in the Evening Standard, the one thing I know is that the words I hear coming from Jesus Christ are the truest words I've ever heard. And perhaps more weightily, Tony Jordan was scriptwriter for EastEnders, Echo Beach and Hustle. Perhaps more weightily, Tom Holland, in his defense of the historical man Jesus of Nazareth a couple of Easter's ago, cited his teaching as the thing which persuaded him as an historian that Jesus was a figure of history. Even more immediately, just this week, Ayan Hersi Ali, Somali-born Dutch-American activist, former politician, came out, why I am now a Christian. 
And she charts her conversion from sitting under the teaching of the Muslim Brotherhood through atheism now to, quote, the spiritual solace and genuine freedom to be found in the Christian faith. So we can spend days wondering on the physical authority and power of Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, his miracles, and we can spend days wondering a lifetime at the courage of Jesus, his resolute bravery, spiritual audacity, moral intractability. But his teaching is remarkable. And today and next Sunday, we're going to explore particular aspects of Jesus' teaching. And I think we can note not simply his instruction, but his extraordinary mental agility, his razor intellect, again and again and again, in face of the most vicious onslaught in the spotlight of all the media, if you like. Uh, We find Jesus in verse 15 of our reading before the equivalent of a congressional court or a parliamentary select committee. It's Passover, probably the Tuesday of the week of his crucifixion. And already the chief priests and elders are indignant at him, have challenged his authority and are seeking to arrest him. And Jesus has just told three profoundly confrontational parables of judgment which they understand at the end of uh, chapter 21 as being speaking about them. And now in this hostile, febrile, bubbling cauldron, Jesus is asked three, these three questions. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? What about the resurrection? Which is the greatest commandment? Now, I don't know about you, but I find myself when I'm asked a question, I was asked a question on uh, Friday at about 11 o'clock. I was speaking to a group of theological seminary students, and the principal asked me a question. And when he asked the question, I thought to myself, oh, gulp, and I kind of bumbled my way through. And it was only about lunchtime yesterday that I thought, now that's the answer I should have given. I I don't know if you find yourself, you're all highly intelligent. You don't look like the kind of people who think later, you know, I should have said this. But with the Lord Jesus, you look at the answer he gives and weeks later, you're thinking not just, oh, he should have said, but completely opposite. How absolutely brilliant. But the motive behind these questions is where we must hold ourselves this morning, because we could spend all morning talking about all sorts of things, but it's the motive behind and the context in which they're set which gives us our application. Yet we may marvel at his teaching. We may be glad of the good sense it all makes. But really, the way he answers these questions in every instance is asking us the question, What do we make of Jesus? So the first question about Caesar is a question of origin and accountability, and it implies the answer, our accountability to Jesus. And the second question is a question of destiny and final judgment, and the answer it implies in its setting, our judgment by Jesus. The approach of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians is really very clever. I mean, they're strange bedfellows, the 
Pharisees and Herodians. The Herodians were friends of Herod, and Herod had been prepared to go along with the Roman government. And the Pharisees were largely non-clerical religious leaders who were horrified at Roman rule. So, you know, there's a saying, isn't it, there about the enemy? It brings together most unusual allies. And Jesus can see straight through them. If you look at verse um, 16 and 17, they sent their disciples to him, the Pharisees, along with the Herodians. They were, verse 15, seeking to entangle him in his words. And together they say, teacher, we know that you are true. You teach the way of God truthfully. You don't care about anyone's opinion and you're not swayed by appearances. Tell us then. And verse 18, Jesus is aware of their malice and says, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Malice because the Pharisees are seeking to entrap Jesus, verse 15. Hypocrisy because their question is so brilliantly framed, but is precisely the opposite of what they actually think. Do you see verse 16? They appeal to his integrity. We know that you're true. They appeal to his theological skill. You teach the way of God truthfully. They appeal to his independence of thought. You don't care about anybody's opinion. They appeal to his resolve. You're not swayed by appearances. I mean, it's a brilliant approach, but it's all complete sham. Flattery in order to achieve entanglement. Hypocrisy, Jesus calls it. The question is brilliant. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? It demands a yes-no answer. If he says, yes, we should pay taxes to Caesar, then the religiously zealous in the crowd just before the Passover at the height of nationalistic tension will want to do away with him. If he says no, the Herodians have got him. Insurrection. So Jesus' answer, verse 19, show, show me the coin for the tax they brought him a denarius. Whose likeness and epigraph inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Now, the coin which is brought to him has on one side a picture of Tiberius Caesar. This side bears the inscription, Ti Caesar Divi Augustus, Tiberius Caesar, son of the emperor Augustus. On the other side, an image of Livia, Tiberius's mother, with the word Max Ponti, Pontifex Maximus Supreme High Priest. Incredibly offensive. But the word Jesus uses, combined with his command following, lay the foundation for all future relations between Jesus' followers and whichever secularist, religious, or anti-Christian state in which they find themselves. He asks literally, whose image is this? Whose image? And the epigraph? Now, of course, the image is Tiberius, and the epigraph is about Tiberius. But to his listeners, the religious in Jerusalem at the temple, that word image is loaded with significance. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
So yes, the coin belongs to Caesar. He minted the coin. I should pay taxes to Caesar. But the image of God is stamped upon me. I'm made in God's image. I owe allegiance ultimately to God, my creator. And this lays the foundation for all proper relationship between the followers of Jesus and that state in which they find themselves. God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, the Lord and ruler of all men, has his image stamped indelibly on every single one of us. And so we could go round the seats, individual by individual, in the image of God, in the image, in the image of God. Every single one of us, by virtue of us being human in this world, owes absolute and ultimate allegiance to God. God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, he made us. But he has also established all governors, powers, rulers, and authorities, and so we should pay our duties and keep the dues and keep the laws of the government and obey the rulers who have, under God's sovereign hand, been placed over us. Now, Jesus implies very much the same thing in his answer before Pilate in John chapter 18, where he taught that his kingdom is not of this world. And the teaching is picked up by the Apostle Paul in Romans 13 and Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2. God is sovereign over secular governments. The Christian is not seeking to overthrow secular governments. God's eternal kingdom is not to be found bound by any territorial state here on earth. All secular governments and authorities are put in place by God. We should therefore render to governments what they are due. But at the same time, we recognize that we have a higher responsibility to render all worship and service to God alone because we're made in his image. Where there is a clash, where the government seeks to overreach its authority, extending its tentacles into human conscience or family life or freedom to speak of Jesus Christ, there the Christian resists. Think Bonhoeffer. Think the underground church in East Asia. Christians continuing to meet and evangelize in Pakistan, Afghanistan. Taxes should be paid. Laws should be obeyed. Where governing authorities exceed their powers, they should be resisted. Where Christians have sought to establish a national Christian state, a kind of Christendom, there Christians should actually be corrected. Now, we could spend the rest of this morning discussing this. I mean, there are so many areas that we could discuss. Note the contrast between Christianity and Islam. You know, we're not a territorial religion. Note the contrast between biblical Christianity and the Holy Roman Empire. We're not seeking to force Christian rule on others. Note the contrast between biblical Christianity and those who seek to establish a Christian state with Christian laws endlessly lobbying for signatures and petitions and so forth. But I think there's an aspect to this reply of Jesus that it's even more brilliant when it's read in its context. For by his use of the word image and inscription or epigraph, at this point in the Gospel of Matthew, in this setting, Jesus is implicitly asking an additional question. 
Why do you put me to the test? I'd love to have the tone in which that is said by Jesus. Not simply whose image and inscription is on this coin, or indeed on every one of us as human beings, but whose epigraph, whose inscription is over the life of Jesus? And in whose image is the Lord Jesus Christ? He he has just taught those three parables, hasn't he? Where in each case, the son of the king is Jesus Christ. He's just told us that the stone the builders rejected will become the cornerstone. And this is marvelous. And now he holds up the coin. Whose image? Whose inscription? Render to Caesar. Render to God. Remember the baptism of Jesus? This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, God says. There's his epigraph. Remember the transfiguration? This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And so in its context, the failure of the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees in a moment, their hypocrisy with regard to Jesus, their malice towards Jesus, their attempt to entangle Jesus is a failure to recognize his position, his authority, God's statement over his life. Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son, in the image of the everlasting invisible God. There are now so many areas of implication that really we could stop here and spend, you know, until mid-afternoon talking about some of the implications of this. I want to begin with a kind of outside edge implication and save the bullet point towards the end. Just Ian Hersey Alley struck me why I am a Christian. Why is she a Christian now? Because of the legacy of centuries of Christian reflection that consists of an elaborate set of ideas and institutions designed to safeguard human life, freedom, and dignity from the nation state, the rule of law, the institutions of science, health, and education. It's a brilliant essay. I I thoroughly recommend reading it. You just Google, I am Hesse Alley, why I am now a Christian, and you'll find it right there, and you'll be able to read it. But as you read it, you'll notice there's no reference to Jesus, really. Just to social constructs, to his teaching. And as we come to the teaching of Jesus here, at which they marvel, we have these Pharisees and authorities who even as he teaches in such a way as to bring the spotlight firmly onto him and his position as God the Son, will have nothing to do with him. Just his teaching. What about him? We may marvel at his teaching. We may be astonished at his wisdom. But it's all pointing in one direction that he is God, and that because of our image indelibly stamped on us by God the maker, we're accountable to him. 
Now, there's the Pharisees and Herodians, and they cause us, I think, to consider our origin accountability, where we've come from. The Sadducees take us to the other end of the envelope, if you like, our destiny and where we're going. They were essentially materialists. They didn't believe in any life beyond the grave. Their idea was that the body perishes, and so does the human spirit. And so their question in verse 24, 25, and 26, well, through to 27 and 28, is a brilliant one. Uh, Teacher Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brothers marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, having no children, left his wife to his brother. So to the second, third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died in the resurrection, therefore, of of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. So they don't believe in the physical resurrection. Let's imagine you do believe in the physical resurrection because of the rule of what's called leveret marriage in the Old Testament, where if your husband died, his next nearest male kin took you as his wife and was due to produce children for your dead male relative, and so on and so on and so on and so on. I I, I would suggest, blokes, try putting that to your sister-in-law, and you will find she tries very hard to make sure your brother stays alive. But Jesus' response takes their legs away. They refuse to believe in the physical resurrection from the grave, the eternal nature of the human spirit, the great day of resurrection and the judgment that lies beyond. They were materialists. They refused to be convinced of the resurrection primarily because they couldn't find the resurrection in the first five books of the Bible, the books Moses wrote, the Pentateuch. Jesus could have argued for the resurrection from the grave from the prophet Isaiah, from the prophet Daniel, from Ezekiel 37, from Psalm 16, from any number of other places in the Old Testament. In his response, he takes them on their own turf. Verse 29. You are wrong. You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read... What was said to you by God? Didn't you go to Saturday school? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Well, the power of God. Do you really think that the resurrection of the dead, when God summons all people from the dust, that we will be the same old, same old? I will be me for eternity. I mean, trying not to look at anybody in particular at the moment, but do you really think you're going to be you, exactly you, for all eternity in the decrepit old body that you... Sorry, sorry, I was getting a bit too carried away there. But do you really think that? No, we should be like the angels. And we'll be given new bodies. And our existence will be wholly transformed and the perishable would put on the imperishable and the mortality will be swallowed by immortality and we shall be clothed in an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And this earthly tent will be transformed into a glorious palace and we will be like the difference between an acorn and the oak tree that you see as you go on your walk around a London park. We will be like the angels. 
and sex and marriage is for procreation, there'll be no need for marriage in the new creation, and sex and marriage is for intimacy and pleasure, and such will be the intimacy and the pleasure of the new creation that there will be no need for marriage in the new creation. Does that suggest there will be no continuity of bonds formed on earth? Well, we may have different views on that. Not necessarily. Perfectly possible for a woman, actually, to love all her children equally. Perfectly possible for us to have equal love. So Sadducees, don't you know anything about the power of God? Come on. Worse. Don't you know your Bible? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God declares himself in Exodus 3, the second book of the Bible written by Moses, to be in the present, presently, the God of three individuals who have been dead for decades, centuries even. And clearly, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still exist to God when he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They must therefore be alive. Were they not alive, he would have said, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so once again, it's a stroke of absolute genius. Do you know, I'm not sure that you or I could ever have made that judgment by reading Exodus 3 on our own. And I'm not sure anybody else had really done it. You might argue that the prophets really had done it with God's help to join the dots. But with just a sentence, Jesus shows us what is plain for all to see. You know how a mathematician, I don't know how a mathematician does this because I never understand it, but you know how a mathematician, they say, can say with an equation something that is so clear, so obvious that everybody stands back and says, why didn't I see that? though nobody has seen it before. And if God can say, I am currently, presently, the God of a person who has long since died, how can you possibly say there is no resurrection beyond the grave? But once again, plugged into its context with Jesus saying these words to those who critique him, it means far more. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. If there is a future beyond the grave, as is taught in the scriptures, then the resurrection from the dead is reality. And if the resurrection from the dead is reality, then there is such a thing as accountability. You will be raised to judgment. I will be raised to judgment. Every single one of us, we could go around the tombs around this building. Sir Thomas Gresham over there, he will be raised to judgment. Alberto Gentili, the Italian uh, uh, spokesman for Queen Elizabeth I over there, he will be raised to judgment. They're alive to God. They're either awaiting Hades for eternal damnation or they are in paradise awaiting the new creation. All of us will be raised to judgment. And if there is such a thing as the resurrection from the grave, then this opens, if you like, the door for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
who in just a matter of two or three days will be nailed to a cross, will then rise, ascend, and be given power to judge the living and the dead. Well, as I say, it's possible to take these questions and tackle them apart from the context in which they're written. And one of the benefits of taking them together means that we have to tackle them in the context in which they're written. We could spend all of lunchtime thinking about Christianity in the state. We could then spend all afternoon talking about the resurrection from the dead. But in the context in which they're written, as the Pharisees, Sadducees, chief priests, elders, as Israel as a whole in the first century, summon the King of kings, the Lord of the lords, the judge of all eternity, the one who created them and the one who will judge them at the last, as they summon him before them and seek to entangle him. Why, if you like, the questioning and the, 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 the pointer of judgment The whole argument has been turned on its head and they are being asked, who do you think I am? What are you going to do with me? Because you came from me, I will judge you at the end. And if you reject me, you will be totally overthrown. My dad was um, a very even kind of handed man. I had the sort of proper respect and held him in awe, but he was a very even-handed man. I only saw him really angry on on a tiny number of occasions. He had plenty of cause to be really angry, may I say, as I look back on my childhood. But one of the occasions where he really was very, very angry indeed, we were teenagers, um, we were a pretty dissolute bunch, and, and we were sitting around a fire that we built on the farm. And unbeknown to him, we had gone to the uh, farm fuel shed and gathered containers, both with diesel, which is less dangerous, and petrol. And we were, we were throwing the petrol onto the fire. You know, when you throw petrol onto a fire, it has a very dramatic effect, which is very appealing to teenagers. We thought this was absolutely fantastic. My father took a very different view when he discovered. But as I've thought about this passage over these last couple of weeks, with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians questioning Jesus, refusing to submit to his authority... Well, it's almost like a scene such as us as a group of teenagers. Oh, what fun we're having. Ho, ho, ho. Isn't this hilarious? We think we can trap him on that one. Oh, we think we'll get him on that one. Oh, I'm sure we can get him on that one. But it's like, you might say, children playing to mix the metaphor with a hand grenade with the pin out. This is Jesus Christ. You dare question him? He'll turn the table. We are accountable to him. He will judge us. Of course, for first century Israel, this this spelt the end of what you might call first century Israel. I mean, they were utterly destroyed in 70 AD in judgment. I can't help thinking this week following the deliberations of the Church of England and their decision willfully to reject the authority of God's word 
that there is a word here for the Church of England. At St. Helens, we won't do anything in a hurry. We've been working on our response for a long time, but things from now are going to be radically different. Radically different. We'll talk about it tomorrow evening at the Church Council. Things will uh, be spoken about in due course. But once, once an institution rejects wholesale the word of God, they come under the judgment of God. And things change. But, but what about us? On my bookshelf, I've got a whole wadge of books from the late 20th and early 21st century um, celebrity atheists. I mean, they're now history. Their, their movement has imploded. And that's been well documented. But I've got a growing number now of, of volumes on the bookshelves by people like Tom Holland and um, Mary Harrington. I mean, Lou, Louise Perry, fascinating, the case against the sexual revolution. Each chapter, sex is special. Men and women are different from the neck up. Loveless sex is not empowering. Consent is not enough. And the final chapter uh, marriage is good. Uh, there's just this growing number of authors, writers, thinkers, secular leaders who are beginning to say, you know, the teaching of Jesus, we overthrow that at our peril. But as you think about their writing, I mean, it may well be that these guys end up surrendering to Jesus. Uh, Jesus seems to be saying far more than by the way, my teaching is going to really help society. And, and, you know, marriage will produce stable families. And, uh, 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 do you know, actually, um, it, it would be very helpful indeed for the development of science and so forth if people recognized and ordered creation under a God who orders everything. It actually makes scientific research possible if you don't think we're entirely random. Yeah, yeah, we like that. That's good stuff. Jesus is asking much more. What do you make of me? Will you question me? Will you surrender to me, my teaching? Let's pray together. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. We ask our father for your forgiveness for our failure so often to see Jesus as you see him, to acknowledge him for who he is, to surrender wholesale to him. We pray for our nation and for the established denomination and ask even now, Lord, that you might have mercy. We pray that you would help us to respond rightly to the rule of Christ in the way we order our own church life and personally, individually. Help each one of us, we pray, to render to you, our creator, to the Lord Jesus, the honor that he is due. For your name's sake, amen.